Are we on? Ah, there we are. What did you make of all of that? How long since you've read Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Okay, how long since you've read Ecclesiastes? The, the next one is how long since you've read the Old Testament. I know that's recent because you've done a Le Le Leviticus. It's a difficult part of the Bible. If, if you're new to church, you, these are one of those days you, you fear. You say, I've landed here, something's been read out, I've no idea what's going on, and let's hope the guy can at least make it reasonably sensible. Otherwise, people tend to lose the will to live. And uh, <laughs> there you go. If you're a regular, if you are regular here at church, though, stay with me. In fact, all of you stay with me, because the curiosity is that what we've just read is part of the Bible, and the Bible is what God is saying. So if there's a problem, it's not with God saying stuff, it's probably more with us trying to understand it. That was written by Solomon, King Solomon, about a, a very wise king, actually, about a thousand years before Jesus was born. So we're going back some distance, long time ago. I heard a guy once say that uh, we live life forward, but we understand it backward. I guess he's talking about hindsight. I think Solomon probably would have agreed with that because his grasp on life and how it works got bigger and bigger as he got older and older. Lots of people actually write about life. If ever you wandered through bookshops or other places, there's always gurus have written stuff on how to survive and how to make life work and so on. Remember Dale Carnegie? What was his book? How to Win Friends and Influence People. Well, it influenced his bank account, if nothing else, let me tell you. But these days we've got more modern ones. Has anyone watched any of the videos of Jordan Peterson? You have. Who is Jordan Peterson? I hear you shout out at me. He's a Canadian psychologist who's come to Australia a few times and wrote a book called The Twelve Rules for Life. And it's selling by the truckload. And it's selling mostly to young men. In fact, when he was in Australia recently, the audience was basically in the 20s to 30 age group male. I watched an interview where John Anderson, who used to be Deputy Prime Minister, uh, John Anderson interviewed him. It's an interesting hour-long interview. You can get it on YouTube. As John Anderson talks with this man, Jordan Peterson, who's not a Christian, but he's quite a realistic kind of guy. He says, life is tragic. He says, we are tiny and flawed and ignorant and weak. And everything around us, from the, from the moment we're born, as we look out at this creation, everything around us is huge and complex and overwhelming. I, I think he's pretty much on the money. He hasn't got some sort of superficial view of life. He's actually saying it's a lot worse and a lot more complex. And if you've got any doubts about that, Christchurch, Sri Lanka, and on and on it would go. And the terrible things that happen in our own community. But Ecclesiastes, as a way of understanding life, 
I think Ecclesiastes beats them all hands down. You see, towards the end of his life, Solomon discovered something very important. And as he travelled through life, searching for fulfilment, the journey ultimately took him back to where he began, to what he once knew but had forgotten. And there it is. The end of the matter, all has been heard. This is how the book ends. The last two verses. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how the book ends. That's the conclusion. God rules. And if he isn't, if he doesn't, we're in trouble. It's also the theme of the book. God rules. And if he's not ruling, we're in trouble. And this ruling is all part of God's plan. For God has a plan. It's our survival plan. Now, I don't know whether you're a, a, a student of classical drama, high-end literature and theatre. If you are, you remember a hit show on TV back in the 1980s. It had an intellectually challenging script. It had deft plot lines. It had subtle characters. The show, you'll know it, was called The A-Team. Yes. And those of you who remember The A-Team, The A-Team of four men who solved problems, it was led by Colonel Hannibal Smith. And at the end of every episode, there was a punchline that Hannibal Smith got to say. Do you remember what it was? I love it when a plan comes together. It's a great show, great escapism. Ecclesiastes, dear friends, is about a plan, not Solomon's, but God's plan. And it's a plan that brings everything together because the writer ends his book by showing God is at the centre of everything. That's how this book works. And we'll put that on hold until we go back to the beginning of the book. Let's have a look at the beginning of the book. For a fir- Here's the beginning. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you had got an older translation of the Bible, it would have meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. That's the same thing. But think about it for a minute. Here's a 12-chapter book, and the opening words are, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. Why write the book? (laughs) I mean, seriously, if everything is vanity and meaningless, then why do this? If everything is that absurd then shouldn't the discussion end right there and then? Let's go fishing. See, but the big, the big question though is, friends, the big question in our minds is, what does that mean? Now, here's a quick little bit of information for you. The word vanity, or sometimes translated meaningless, in the Hebrew is the word hebel, H-E-B-E-L, hebel. And that word's used about 60 times in the Old Testament, and 40 of them are actually in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's, it's, a, it's a word that is is really at home in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Vanity. It's strange that they translate it that way because normally it's translated as breath or vapour. 
or mist or smoke. Like, for example, there it is. Smoke. Mist. You can't see in it, can you really? It's hard to see through. Breath, mist, fog. They're, they're in, it, it's, it's there, it's kind of tangible, but it's temporal and it's transient. In the book of Psalms, it says, You have made my days a few handbreadths. That's the word there again. Mist, vanity, meaningless. And my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, even those who seem secure. Or even in, in James, in the New Testament, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make money. Yet you don't know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or to do that. Breath, mist, fog. You see, the idea that the writer of Ecclesiastes is bringing before us is not that life is, uh, you can't fathom it. It's a bit like looking into a fog. You know there's something there, but you just can't quite discern it. And that's what he wants us to see in this book. Where vapour and mist are visible, like breath on a cold morning, you can see it. We know there is something there, can't see it clearly. It's a bit of a puzzle. Mist and vapour make things difficult to see or to discern. It's not without meaning. There's a meaning there. Just can't kind of grab it. Yet. We will soon. Where will we find this meaning? How can we see through the mist? That's the puzzle. So quickly recap. Ecclesiastes ends with an acknowledgement of God's plan. Ecclesiastes begins by contemplating life as complex and puzzling and mist-like. So what I want us to do is to dive into the Ecclesiastes. That's a bit of a kind of a bookend of the book. We'll dive into the middle section and then dive in further into, into chapter 5 and see what we make of that. Let's go to, say, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 4 and 5. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon powerfully declares that every human experience fits into a timetable. Whatever you or I do can be traced ultimately to God. It's all part of God's purposes and plan. That verse on the screen it's probably one of the best-known verses of the Bible because it occurs in songs, doesn't it? But really, it's not a prediction. It's actually a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement from God telling us that he orders our lives and our actions. But we're looking through a mist. This isn't a prescription for life. It's not telling us what he has planned for us. It's telling us that he has planned, but we can't see it clearly. We cannot discern the plan because of the corrupting influence of the world. Putting it bluntly, friends, for those of you who remember the story of Genesis 1, 2 and 3, putting it bluntly, you and I are living 
outside the garden. So what I mentioned, Christchurch and Sri Lanka, that's because we live outside the garden. And when you're angry at your husband or your wife and you have a power play in your marriage, it's because we're living outside the garden. See, there's a problem with the central coast. I can say that because I used to live in the Southern Shire. Both places I've heard referred to as God's own country. What a stupid expression. Because when I journey up the M1 leaving Hornsby and come along the road and swing into, down Carryong and head into the Central Coast, I don't see a big sign there that says, welcome, there is no sin here. <laughs> Everyone lives eternally here. No one dies. There's no sickness, no marriage breakdown. How stupid. Or down near where I live at Terrigal, there's signs that say, move to the Central Coast and live the seven-day weekend. Duh. Are you like me sometimes, putting my car in the car park at Gosford at 6.30 in the morning, then picking it up at 6.30 at night? Where's the weekend? It's courtesy of City Rail. Now, it's silly, you see. We, we, God... Ha- the, We're looking at the mist. There's a plan there. We've not actually fully understood it yet. In fact, it's a beautiful plan. And in this little bit here in chapter 3, time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to... All these things, as you go through it, time is repeated 28 times in those first uh, eight or nine verses. It's the main point of it, namely, God foreordains and humanity is accountable. Life exasperates us. And let's be honest. Let's not just sort of be pretending people, you know, always look on the bright side. No, life exasperates me. And life exasperates you. I was at a funeral yesterday, a minister friend of mine, down at Presbyterian Church at Woiwoi. It was his funeral. I got home to have a phone call about another friend who's dying of a brain cancer. Came ever so quickly. Even in a couple of days' time, I'm going to have a cataract operation on my eye. That kind of complicates things. Let's be realistic. It's one of the reasons why I think Jordan Peterson's book, even though he's not a Christian man, is, has, has such, is striking... Um, uh, realistically in people's hearts yes he's not trying to put a kind of a gloss on stuff life exasperates us it's teeming with unlimited opportunities but also terrors as well and being built in God's image we each possess a hunger to know the details so he has made everything beautiful in its time Still in chapter 3, see? Also, he has put eternity into the human heart. We've got this questioning aspect, this longing to know, to find meaning. Yet, he, yet, so, that he cannot, yet so that he cannot what God has done from the beginning to end. It's misty. It's misty. The plan of God encompasses everything in the lives of men and women 
Nothing is outside his sovereign reach or scope. There are no exceptions. And if you go on through the rest of chapter 3, you'll say everything is caught up in God's plan. And we haven't got time to go through it all in, in detail, but he talks about unjust and just rulers are all part of God's plan. Humanity lives and dies, all part of God's plan. Verse 21 in that little passage says, I'll read it to you. Um, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than man that he should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Wow. Uh, In chapter 4, we learn how men and women can be cruel to each other and spiteful. And people can can sometimes be shut out of families and isolated and feel lonely. It's all there at the end of chapter 3. And into chapter 4. But when you come through to chapter 5, which is read for us, there's great encouragement and, and, and yet a, a great need to be cautious. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, it starts in chapter 5. Because the, despite the reality of all the obstacles and the things that kind of confuse us, none of these can or should be offered as an excuse for neglecting our own relationship with God. And that's where we're going, you see. We know how the book ends, talks about honouring God uh, in your life. That's where the book's going. But along the way, we've got to face challenges to that because there's going to be things along the way that which says, don't trust God. Or like um, uh, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, who said, as soon as you ask the question, why is things happening? You've asked the wrong question. Why is, is a question we will not allow to be asked, he said on television as I watched him. But the Bible is getting me to ask it because God has put eternity in man's heart. We are not just a molecule linked to another molecule. There's reasoning and then thinking going on here. There's purpose. So, friends, don't think thoughts as though God is not in control. Don't think that way. Don't behave as if God is not in control. Don't yield to practical atheism. Sometimes it's good to ask people a little searching questions. I like them. I say a question goes like this. I pick one of you, ask you the question, whose is the loudest voice in your ear? That's a really good question. Because our doubts arise when we start listening to that voice. And you know who the loudest voice in my ear usually is? Me. Why do I like to listen to it? Self-doubt. I'm not that good. What if I fail? And the loudest voice in my ear becomes my voice. Don't yield to practical atheism. Listen to God. And that's how he starts, you see here. In chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listen to God. Don't lecture him. Because <laughs> we want to tell God how to do it. And the, and the preacher, the teacher, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, his strong advice is to go to the house of God. In other words, gather with God's people. We can't go to God's house now. There was only one place called that. That was the temple in Jerusalem. 
<clears throat> now the temple is Jesus and we gather around him and his word. We can't go to the temple now literally. So what does he mean? In simple terms, he's urging us to be cautious when approaching God. And God is his word. One of the great statements out of the Reformation was, God is his word. God said to the people in Deuteronomy, when I spoke, when I revealed myself, you didn't see a form or a likeness, you simply heard speech. So as we read the scriptures, that's how we're gathering near to God. We gather to read and to listen, not to lecture and, and, to, and to reinterpret. Because we're, we're subject to an awful lot of influences. Like I asked you, who's is the loudest voice in your ear? I wonder how influential our Heavenly Father is in the way we actually approach life. Be honest and be faithful. Don't make promises lightly. See, he goes on. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't make promises lightly. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, famous statement, when he, when he questioned people who were following him, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? A minister, acquaintance of mine, gave great sermons called Jesus Lord at the same time as having an affair with his secretary and his wife is sitting in church. Wow! How do you put that together? See, it's very easy to run other people's lives. It's like raising other people's children. Why do you call me Lord, Lord in the songs we've sung and the prayers we prayed and just Go through that door and as if nothing has ever happened. Ecclesiastes is living in the real world. He's saying at every moment in life, all the different times in chapter 3, God is, 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 God is working out his plan. It's mist-like. I can't see it clearly, but he is. We'll get to the end and, and solve that in a moment. In chapter verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, it talks about how to relate to other people, people who are rulers and those in higher tri tri uh, tribunals. In fact, it gets down to chapter 5, verse 10, and that gets a, it strikes a note here really good for those people on the central coast. Chapter 5, verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is meaningless or vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Human desire outruns our acquisitions. I, I get something, I acquire it, but the desire is still there. No matter how big those acquisitions are. Let me pause here and, and we'll have a time of confession. Anybody here play Minecraft? Anybody ever, here ever heard of Minecraft? Oh, good, okay, and we're on track here. Okay, all right. <laughs> Minecraft was developed by uh, guys about 40 years of age now, a Swedish guy called Marcus Persson. In 2015, four years ago, he sold Minecraft to Microsoft for just under $3 billion. In fact, uh, he then was, he was cashed up so he went and bought a new house. 
He outbid Beyonce. You've heard of Beyonce? Yeah. He outbid Beyonce by 100 million for a beautiful mansion, I assume, uh, on the island of Ibiza, I-B-I-Z-A. You've heard of it in the Mediterranean. There he is. And that's what he tweeted straight afterwards. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. I know what you're thinking. I'd like to have, had some, have that much money to know what that feels like. <laughs> Careful. And then he goes, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Now we all go yes to that. Until the brochures from Erin Affair fall out of our local newspaper or lob on our front doorstep. See, that's, that's pornography for Christians. Gee, I'd like that. I wonder what it would feel like to have one of those. Hmm. We live outside the garden, friends. Don't live for wealth, even when it masquerades as lifestyle. We don't talk, we don't talk about being covetous now. We talk about improving our lifestyle. It never tops out. And hence, it's never identified as what it is. It's an insatiable appetite for more. And Ecclesiastes says, and this is what is curious, that often folk don't pick up. Ecclesiastes acknowledges that some people will be wealthy. If wealth does come, it only comes because it's a gift from God. Remember, life is misty. It's transient. We thank God for whatever comes before us and then we use it for God's purposes. Because in verse 11, see, when goods, in chapter 5, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? The more wealth you get means the more concern. You get personally att attached to things and you become obsessed with them, become mesmerised by money. And then wealth will bring parasites who want to take your money away from you. They might even be related to you. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. More money does not mean better sleep. The more we have means greater the worry about losing it. Anyone here ever heard of a fellow called Ross Gittins? Now, where'd you hear about him? Newspaper, of course, they still make them. Now, Ross Gittins is the economic editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm always intrigued with what he writes because he's kind of sensible. I discovered, talking to a friend of mine who went to school with him, that Ross Gittins comes from a Salvation Army family and used to run the inter-school Christian fellowship group in his high school. Doesn't claim to be a Christian now, but the influence is there. This is what he wrote just recently. If I wanted to get more happiness into my life, I wouldn't do it by trying to earn more money. I'd concentrate on spending more time with family and friends and getting more satisfaction from work itself 
rather than the money it brings in. See what I mean? That's not the regular economist writing there. I don't know whether Alan Kohler would say that. The guys on TV. Oh, what about this? That's because, says Gittins, though money does buy happiness, it buys far less than we expect it to. It suffers from rapidly diminishing marginal utility. Oh, he is an economist after all. Each extra $1,000 you spend brings less satisfaction than the one before. Uh, I haven't got the slide for this, but I saw him recently. He wrote, there are three ways of putting food on the table, you know, getting some money. Um, You get a job, whether it's brain surgeon or butcher. You just, maybe the same thing. But anyway, (laughs) you, 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 you get a job and you get income. Job. Second thing, um, you get a career. And the third one is you have a hobby for which you get paid. Now, interesting, and then he said, do you know which of the three has the highest rates of anxiety and depression and suicide? The career one. Because my identity is linked to that. How's your identity going? See, don't live for wealth, even when it masquerades as lifestyle. Very simple. Because possession, verse 13, is so uncertain and brief. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Isn't that fascinating? A rich man's wealth, it says, is his strong city in Proverbs and like a high wall in his imagination. He thinks he's safe, but he isn't really. Not safe at all because others will take it from him. In fact, there's a great prayer in the book of Proverbs along this line. Two things I ask of you. This is the... uh, Oh, sorry, I've got the wrong... um, Do not, it should be do not. Thank you, spell check. Two things I ask of you. uh, Grant them, don't grant them, grant them, sorry. Don't let them, it's a complete mix up there. Let me, I should get the text and I'll read it to you better. Um, Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me. That's what it was. Did you work that out? No, I okay. can't. But you won't forget it now, will you? <laughs> Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. This is a man's prayer, the prayer of Agar. The prayer of Agar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? There we are. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. I wonder if you hear that prayer in a, in a church prayer meeting. Dear God, please stop me from getting rich in case I forget you. Dear God, please keep me from great poverty in case I'm tempted to steal. That's the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes w- would agree with that. Very powerful stuff.
See, in verse 15 of chapter 5, he goes on, uh, he says, the wealthy, must ret- all, the wealthy must return to his maker. See, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days uh, he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. We end our days devoid of our wealth, whether large or small. It's funny. People even get special suits to wrap dead bodies in before they died, well, after they've died, before they're buried. I know someone who actually bought one second hand and he got a shock when he got it. It was to dress up a relative. There were no pockets in it. <laughs> Very clever. Just flaps. So God's plan ends as it began with God. See verse 18 of chapter 5? Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun and the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. In other words, he's saying, accept what God brings to you. Accept what God brings to you. And as you get older, it's more important to remember that. So far, I've got two stents. Anyone got more than two? No. Oh, no. So, who has? I've got a couple. Okay. It's a bit like an auction, isn't it? You know, to, or like a bingo call, you know, work out. When I had to learn I was getting my first one, that reminded me that my days are numbered. The second one came in Gosford Hospital a couple of years ago. My, my days are still numbered. Do you get angry when that sort of thing happens? Fascinating, isn't it? We start life as small children, babies, completely self-oriented. We're tempted to end our way, days the same way. The problem with sickness is it makes you think about yourself and forget God. But the true answer in Ecclesiastes is recognise that whatever comes before us, God is working his purpose out. Because see, humanity has the capacity and desire to know how all things and ideas fit together. That's what we long for. We want to understand the whole plan. And yet we cannot know it until we come to know the one who built men and women in his own image. That's where Ecclesiastes is leading us to see. What all the things happen in life, it's God. Life in and of itself. Even in God's good world, with all its good God-given gifts, and there are many, Life is unable to deliver meaning and joy when we, when we grab hold of it in bits and pieces and forget the one who gave it. So the ending explains the beginning. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. All is transitory. All is transitory, all is misty, all is misty, all is meaningless, all is meaningless. Apart from the fact that we know that there is a God who's working his plan 
and it's on the other side of the mist. Jonathan Edwards, a very famous Christian man, earlier centuries, said, there's not so much difference before God between children and grown-ups. In, in God's presence, there's not much difference between children and grown-ups. Well, not as big a difference as we might imagine. We are all poor, ignorant, foolish babes in his sight. And our adult age, our many birthdays, do not bring us so much near to God as we might be apt to think. No. It's shameful, sad, foolish to have lived and not know the key to living. What a waste to have died without having enjoyed life properly or known what it was all about. Or who provided it all the same. And what a tragedy it would be, friends, to be looking out on this world and to never know the one whose plan is operating through it all. See, Jordan Peterson said, life is tragic and we are tiny and flawed and ignorant and weak and everything else is huge, complex and overwhelming. But God, Ecclesiastes says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And the perpetrators of Christchurch and Sri Lanka are there. Including every secret thing, whether good or evil, even what took place in your bedroom or at your desk. See, God is behind it all. Or if that's not strong enough, look at the words of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And that has come out of the mist and is right before us now. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Please help us to, to study your word and to understand it clearly. And Father, comfort us, remind us that behind all things you are working your gracious purposes. And whether we be rich or poor, young or old, sick or well, Father, help us to see that whatever state we are in, it is under your kind hand that we are here. Help us, Father, through all of life to honour your Son, the Lord Jesus, until we stand before him and are graciously welcomed into your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.